0: you know we 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 forgive we're more forgiving of humans <laughs>
1: Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman.
2: I'm Shao Kizal.
1: And I'm Rob Kernahan. And this week, we're going to be talking about the additional security risks AI might open up. Obviously it's on everyone's agenda at the moment, organizations and governments thinking about how we deal with AI in society and how we might govern and regulate that. Joining us this week is Bill Reed, a security advisor in the office of the CISO at Google to help us with the conversation. So Bill, great to see you. I'm glad that you're here. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do?
0: Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. So I am a security advisor in in our office of the CISO, part of Google Cloud. And we're a group of former security leaders and CISOs who found our way here to be part of the cloud business here at Google, and we work with uh, security leadership and security professionals across our customer base as they are trying to tackle various security challenges, regulatory compliance challenges associated with the adoption of cloud more broadly across their businesses. And I came out of the healthcare and life sciences industry and and so uh, tend to focus much of my time in that space. And uh, my colleagues have come out of a variety of other sort of industry domains as well, and, and they tend to focus on customers in those spaces. And our job is really to to partner with our customers to help them uh, solve the challenges that they're facing as they're adopting cloud.
1: Okay, so let's maybe dive into the conversation around the heightened security implications around AI by just stepping back a second and just setting out what they are. So, Bill, in your head, what's changed in the security landscape since the introduction of particularly generative AI and large language models?
0: Well, I, I think that you know what we're doing is introducing data in some respects, right? You're, we're we're introducing the idea of programming a model with training data sets and validating those models and testing those models and, and in some respects taking what um, maybe previously was really just about application development to kind of a, a new level, which is now I'm I'm actually in some respects programming a model through the application of of data. And I think we're we're just perhaps extending what it is that we've been doing in terms of the development of technology to uh, kind of injecting um, a new element into that. And that's, and that's really from the perspective of adding that, those data.
1: And what does that do? Does that change the attack surfaces or something like that from a point of view of a, a rogue agent?
0: Well, I think if you think about, you know, one of the challenges that we've been dealing with generally with um, security as of late has really been associated with supply chain. Right. And so if you think about a, a lot of what many of us have been dealing with over the last several years, it's really been to t- kind of turn our focus toward um, managing the supply chain, the security supply chain. So understanding the software dependencies and, and some of the open source services that we're bringing into our products and thinking about how we construct the, the supply chain of behind the development of an application. Hmm. And I think that um, in some respects, now what we will continue to need to do is to think about supply chain, but perhaps not only from um, an application perspective, but I think as well thinking about it from a data perspective. So if if you think about like, where am I gaining um, data for model training? Um, I'm going to be concerned about provenance much like I would be concerned about provenance in the software supply chain. Um, so if you think about it, maybe it maybe it's really about a model supply chain, um, right, and right. so it's it's not just the software that that we have to be, I think, paying attention to, but really thinking carefully about: do we really understand the provenance of of those data that were used for building that model?
1: And 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 the potential consequences, you know, both from a um, from an attack on the data model is your AI basically starts to spew out um, incorrect information, misleading information. So you can see how, you know, in the light of what happened with Facebook during recent elections and certain things going on in different countries, um, how, like, attacking a data set could actually be exceptionally disruptive in a world of large, uh, uh, in a world of uh, widespread AI, right?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's more, you know more about um, introducing um, unexplainability. You know, if, if I, as opposed to kind of going to really dire, a dire space, um, I think it, it really is a question of do I if, I, if I really don't understand the data set on which I've trained, um, and I really don't understand whether or not those data have validity um, and appropriateness and um, no bias, um, I really don't understand likely what the output of that model is going to be. And it starts to behave in ways which Hmm. may not be um, as predictable or knowable as I would like it to be. And I think that when we get into um, the application of these types of models toward uh, assisting us in our daily lives, whether that's helping us identify new drug compounds or whether that's helping us have autonomous vehicles or whether that's helping us with a variety of other services. You know, um, the unknowability, I think, is is one of the things we'd like to avoid and we'd like to be able to explain. And And, you know, in particular, I think, you know, regulators often look at, um, trying to understand, um, do you understand what's behind your behind your work? Um, and do you understand how something behaves? Yeah, indeed.
1: Rob likes to introduce unexplainability in almost every conversation. <laughs> <with>. <laughs>
3: well, it's that thing about you could store up through a data set, if you're very good at it, put some subtlety in and store up an unintended consequence for the user, and it's like that sophistication. That like goes back to the software supply chain, with SolarWinds, where they actually managed to inject the back door into the software code right at the beginning. It all got cryptographically signed and sent out, and it looked absolutely pucker. But actually, they they were able to control the system for some time due to the level of sophistication. I suppose this is brute force affect the data. But I suppose the art form is in how subtly can you manipulate it to get the the system to make the wrong decision or guide the organization or the nation state in in the wrong way. I suppose Bill, do you have a view on that? And then I suppose it's the real time versus the trained model uh, over
0: learned data sets that are very large. Is is is, is, is yeah. there a
3: difference in your view?
0: Yeah. I, I, You know, I I think if you look at some of these training data sets, they're incredibly large. And so then the question becomes, well, how much data does it take to actually cause a a deviation um, that would be meaningful in the model over those um, vast amounts of training data? And I think that we're going to really have to pay attention to um, trying to better understand that, um, to understand what would be meaningful manipulation,
3: and I suppose when you think about, we talked previously about passing control to the algorithm. So how much risk do you accept or allow the algorithm? Or how much autonomy do you give the algorithm to do stuff so light? Is it a trading platform where there's a lot of money at risk versus something that might cause risk to life like a self-driving car. There is that, how do I balance the risk off to know that my data set is is pure, it's got good efficacy, and I can trust it. And I suppose that's that. Is that, is that causing a rise in new ways to think about security from an AI and algorithmic perspective? Because we used to put stuff in, stick it through a very particular testing profile. It's got known outcomes, but with this sort of AI and self-learning, you can start to get this algorithm that can change over time and Perform different behaviors. Is, is that causing a need to think about it completely differently? Maybe a rise of a new security discipline, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I mean, in, in some regards, right, we we apply kind of relative controls relative to the risk that we face today, right? In security, and and I, and in some respects, I I, I look at it. And I'm like, I don't know that that would change. So, for example, for a very low risk encounter, I might have very minimal supervision over a human operator. Um, But in a higher risk situation, I might have much more supervision. I might not let a sole person make the decision. I might have guardrails. I might have additional monitoring associated with the amount of autonomy that I allow an individual. And so, you know, in some respects, I think, why would we do any different with regard to these technologies? Because, you know, in some respects, um, if if I've got AI, really I'm using AI as a tool in the context of a high-risk situation, you know, I, I might want to have compensating controls, um, guardrails associated with that that would keep that in check much as I would if I had a human um, in a high-risk situation. And, you know, I think in some respects, you know, we seem to have a higher tolerance for um, human error than we do for machine error. Yeah. You know, or we tend to look at these models as though we will operate them in an unfettered, uncontrolled way. And, you know, I, I think that I doubt that's going to actually be the case. I think right. that we're going to incorporate these as we would any other technology sets of tools and with appropriate controls relative to the risks that we face. So,
1: when you look at that from a threat modeling perspective, does that change, or do we have to expand how we think about threat modeling in this scenario?
0: Well, I think if we think about, you know, so so, kind of threat modeling at its core, you know, and and if you think about some of the lessons learned from Adam Shostak and the way that he's described threat modeling, you know, fundamentally, it's what are we what are we trying to do, um, what can go wrong, and what are we going to do about it, and if we think about what are we trying to do? First, that begins with this question of, do we actually understand the model? Um, do we understand how that model is going to be used? Do we understand the data flows um, and the interdependencies and the trust boundaries around those models? And, you know, I think that's probably going to be one of the areas that where it will most change, because people will need to understand, um, do, we un- do we have a trust boundary a known trust boundary. Where is that? How is it being established and maintained? Um, and and I think that will change depending on whether that's a model that's deployed inside a, a, a corporate setting or whether that's a model that's deployed for broad public use.
1: Right. And the trust boundary presumably being, for want of a better term, the data boundary. So where, you, where you're where you sourcing that data from, what the data actually is. So if it's, that's within a known untrusted setting, like your own enterprise, uh, assuming that that's a secured data set, then you can have a relatively high trust level around that data set versus say uh, you're sourcing open data from the from the internet. Is that what you're getting at?
0: Well it's it, it's both the data, but it's also the authenticity of those sources. Can I can I actually understand and authenticate um, the provider of those data and are they authorized to provide those data to me? Um, and is that data, those data being provided to me in a way that has integrity from the provider to me? Um, and I think we're, what we're going to need to do is to try to think about how we model those environments out. And, and that's going to require that we understand how these, these models work and how they're deployed and, and how they, what the security apparatus is that's wrapped around the kind of environments in which they're hosted and built and maintained.
3: I love the idea, though, as you said earlier, about people forgive humans more than computers. And is it because we've got a personality and everybody loves personality? So when the computers actually get personalities, we'll forgive them more when they make heinous mistakes. <laughs> well, yeah. This idea yeah. of, oh, it's all right. Yeah. You're
1: speaking <laughs> as a gamer.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's this, there's this view. <laughs> the computers get more leeway because they they make us laugh a bit more or they uh we've we've grown too attached to them or something you hear about people forming relationships with the sort of uh, personal uh digital assistants and things and you think that can only get worse in the future
1: no that is the truth and also that's that is going to be an interesting uh, well say interesting scary way to potentially you know attack somebody right if you have got a an emotional relationship with a computer or a you know, a, a generated bot that's using a GPT like technology, and that the data set that, that was running that bot was undermined. That's going to ha- actually have an emotional impact on your right? So It's not only will, can these attacks be potentially commercially destructive now, but actually could be emotionally destructive even more directly and, uh, and concerningly than before.
0: You know, I, I think we already have social engineering. Right. True, and it's yeah. it is highly effective, yeah. and 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 it works because humans desire connection. Um, they want to trust, even when they distrust. They still want to believe yeah. in goodness, and in some respects, um, want to be helpful. I'm dealing with a rental
1: car company at the moment to try and get an overcharge back. And I, I want to believe. But a few, a few, <laughs> right. I'm a few weeks right. into this battle at this point, and I'm, I'm giving up, I've got to say. And I'm not even sure whether I've been speaking to humans. You might not. <laughs> no, no I have no idea. The, the, the emails would suggest not.
0: <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think that what we'll end up doing is, you know, the, the question will be, does um, the application of, of this technology make it easier for social manipulation? And I think that it doesn't change the fact that people can be socially manipulated, psychologically manipulated, Mm. Um, but perhaps it is a tool that makes it easier for that to happen. And then the question becomes, well, if the tool can be used to do those types of attacks, then there will be tools that make it assistively better to prevent those types of attacks. I mean, I, I think that often what we end up you know, what I've observed right now in the conversations around AI is that we tend to look at it from a threat perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to underestimate the defensive value of AI as a tool to actually help us discern what is um, potentially manipulative, what's potentially biased, what is social engineering. So we tend to have looked at this from this um, adversarial perspective, like AI is going to be used in some nefarious way, as opposed to looking at it as as something that may be actually quite helpful. And it, it's almost like looking at the invention of fire as a way of burning people instead of keeping them warm. Um, you know, and it's <laughs> and it's a good kind analogy of like, that I like that. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, brilliant. And, so, yeah. and we sit there and we go, "Well, fire is dangerous because it's going to burn people," and and meanwhile, there's you know, huddled masses of cold people, right, who need technologies that help, you know, warm them. And so, in some respects, I look at this and try to unearth where are the positive elements toward improving securability Hmm. in the mix of all of this. And I I think that there's, you know, if you think about one of the big, uh, just go off on this tangent for a second, you know, one of the big challenges in security, for example, is that we deal with massive amounts of noise, yeah, right, and we are constantly listening for signal, and and we're we're struggling, right? Um, if you look at the amount of of just log aggregation and available log information, and trying to discern out of out of logs um, true threat, um, true signal of of some sort of event. Hmm. Well, one of the things that large language models and AI in general, are really good at is summarization. The ability to actually go find and amplify the signal out of noise and um, do that much more quickly and effectively um, than often humans can do. And so if I look at that, I think, well, if time to detection is critical and I can now adopt a technology that massively changes that in my favor, so that I'm much able, much more able to actually detect signal. That's great, right? That's 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 ideal. And in in some respects, um, all of a sudden now, my job as a security professional becomes an easier one.
3: I love the very positive view of AI for a force for good, because actually in the press, and everybody, it's all naysayers, it'll be the end of society, the doom, we've got to pause it. But actually taking a different viewpoint say, how can we use it to defend against the nefarious things that happen to us and warn us and little warnings pop up and say, no, you don't want to do that. Sorry, Ooh, I wouldn't click that link. And here's why. I think that's a really nice twist on the, on the narrative, because at the moment it's very negative and it's going to be the end of us all. But actually it could Build a bright future. Who knows?
1: Are you just trying to make it up to our robot overlords, Rob? About the other stuff you said. <laughs>
3: That's right. Yeah, I, uh, a I'm bit late I, now, and just hope they're benevolent, as I've said in the past. But it's the it's the it's said before the the Frank Herbert vision of the future in June, as the AI wrecked it all, versus the other perfect Star trek type society where technology saved us. And I do wonder which path we're going to
0: take. Yeah. You know, I, I I think in some regards, it'll probably be a blend. Right. And, and I think that typically, you know, if, if you, if you look back at, at, kind of major significant technology inflections, um, inventions.
1: In terms of ending on that positive note then, there are a lot of organizations at the moment that are putting in place like AI governance boards and and AI ethics boards and trying to think about how to introduce AI into their organizations constructively and responsibly. So from a, a security and risk perspective, what advice would you give those organizations that are trying to spin up that conversation?
0: Well, I think it... You know, kind of, it, it fundamentally begins with a deep understanding of of what it is that we're talking about, um, and part of that is making sure that we understand the elements of what is AI, what is generative AI, what are foundation models, what is machine learning, what is, you know, reinforcement learning. We're, we're going to need to get smarter about and just. Dis- Uh, discerning the differences in the technologies, because I think that the way that different tools work, the way that different models work, uh, will require different types of controls. Um, I think that the challenge we have today is that we tend to go, again, with a very negative broad view of highly informed by um, chat GPT and, and, and broad publicly available generative models that tends to be you know, we look at broad brush approaches, and and I think that we need to really deeply understand what would it, what it is that we're talking about. I think that's step number one. I think the next is to really start to look at it from um, going back to that threat modeling viewpoint, which is, do I understand the ways in which um, things can go wrong? Can I kind of apply a, a, a systematic and comprehensive analysis of the application of these technologies, and then thinking carefully about the controls that I'm going to apply relative to those those potential threats. And then once I have those types of controls, then it's really thinking carefully about what is it that I need to establish from a governance perspective to support the consistent application of those controls in my organization or across organizations or in society at large. I think that's it, it kind of builds from that kind of foundational understanding, and then it works its way up to policy. I think what we have tended to do is come in with a broad policy and apply it downward, as opposed to maybe organically building upwards from an understanding discernment between the differences um, and thinking carefully about the implications of that. So I I guess I I would advocate for more of a grassroots approach to it that is founded in deep understanding.
3: Although there is that point, Bill, say, I absolutely agree with what you said there. If only the people who were in charge actually understood what policy they were forming around the thing that they're yeah. concerned about. If I, I always remember the TikTok hearings and listening to some of the questions that were asked. You just go, oh, my word. There might be something to answer here about security of the application, but, but not about asking if it uses Wi-Fi. It's like, what? Yeah, These people are
0: making legislation. Stop them well I, okay. I, I i think that what they're doing is they're legislating off of a public generative model so what they we we suddenly had explode onto the scene chat gpt with very little guardrail and people looked at that and they said wait what's the training data set and and it was well the public internet um, through 2021 and it was like well is that okay? And then people started thinking about it, wait, reinforcement learning. that's turned on. People are entering PII. And I think that you know, the EU looked at it and said, "Whoa, what <laughs> where, is this? Where, where, where are these data going? And, and how is it training? Is it incorporating the, what people are typing in? And I think there was a strong kind of reaction to potentially privacy violations. Yeah. Um, and it really, I mean, most of the conversation that I've seen has been less about the security and honestly more about the privacy.
1: Shauki, what you been looking at this week?
2: Each week I will do some research on what's trending in tech, and this week I want to focus on some successful generative AI examples. So there are basically two different classes of AI systems that are really contributing to the current AI success stories. And those are generative AI systems that basically create things like pictures, audio, writing samples, etc., but also discriminative AI systems. And they are used to actually predict labels or classifications. So for example, you can use a discriminative model to predict whether or not an email is spam. So let's dive into a couple of successful use cases that use these two different systems and sometimes even combine the two as well. So first one, pharmaceutical companies are really using generative AI now for designing proteins for medicines. And in manufacturing, different products use generative AI to design physical objects. And in the entertainment sector, ChatGPT and Dolly other types of tools are, re- are already heavily used in generating conceptual art to guide scenario and environment development. So a question for you, Bill. If we look at the near future, what industries will benefit the most out of generative AI?
0: Interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, So I spend a fair amount of time looking at uh, healthcare and life sciences as an industry space. And I think that you know, in some respects, we've been applying AI in in tools like AlphaFold, for example, um, for several years now. And so AlphaFold was a large project where essentially uh, Google open-sourced um, some tools that allowed for the ability to predict protein shapes based on a, a sequence of base pairs. And, and I think that, you know, the ability and kind of the capabilities of AI in the biological research space are going to be tremendous. It and and the primary reason for that is because it is such a data rich um, environment. And so, if I think about the ability to um, look across large amounts of data and and find meaningful patterns and meaningfully um, meaningful differences in those data, it's going to be in that space in particular. And I and I think that we'll see a fair amount of that in terms of, of the ability to do drug discovery, the ability to really deeply understand disease, um, I think that's that's probably going to be one of the, the industries uh, most affected.
3: And Bill, as people start to use AI more and more in industry and such like, we saw with the recent TikTok hearing a potential lack of understanding of the technology, albeit there could be a good security concern to answer. Do you think those who make the rules... For what's legal and what's not, you know, the nation states. Do you think they're armed with enough capability and education to be able to make sensible
0: decisions at the moment? You know, I I, I think they're trying their best. You know, I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt in this regard. I, I think that we're all trying to understand the dimensions and the impact of this um, this new technology. And, and I think that, you know, very often, um, you know, Let's, say, let's just say I, I have yet to see, for example, a law that is formed in advance of the invention. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like legislators are sitting around inventing a, a law and then the invention happens. We typically, legislation follows, right? Regulation follows invention. And it's really in response to trying to put some dimension or control uh, for what's acceptable to society at that particular point in time. And I think that That's what we're doing. That's what we're kind of seeing.
1: Are you tracking the current debate about legislation around AI Bill? And what's your perspective in terms of how it's
0: currently being approached? Well, it's been interesting in the application, you know, kind of control over uh, model development with regard to copyright. And so if, you know, you kind of look at ways in which, um, you know, models are training on data that may involve ownership interests of others, right? So I I think one of the areas that we're honestly gonna see a tremendous amount of um, thought in and development around is going to be that around intellectual property. Because if you think about, you know, if I'm training a large data set and that data set is involving the intellectual property of others to create intellectual property, then the question will be, well, where's the ownership interest in all of that? And I think that in some respects, the regulators have, have looked at that and said, hey, that might be a way of actually introducing some constraint by regulating intellectual property rights and copyright.
3: And just an extension from that then, it's very easy to create videos that look like that's that person talking a bit of recording of the voice and you can get them to say anything what do you think will happen around the right to the individual and somebody representing them online potentially saying something that is defamatory or misleading etc there's a whole new Avenue opening up where somebody at home with a standard computer can make a video of anybody with enough raw data to to, to replicate them on the internet yeah
0: you know I, I, I think we're going to end up testing law. I'm, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not going to speculate on, on on what's illegal and legal and that sort of thing. But I, I do think that, um, you know, we have laws associated with uh, libel and slander. And I think we will see the application of existing law to those new situations and we'll test the boundaries and the applicability
3: Yeah, I suppose one of the things with social media was the the authorities don't have enough capacity to properly police it. So then to your point, do we use AI to defeat the AI and help the authorities control the system to stop bad people doing bad things online? And I suppose it's how do they cope with the overload of trying to deal with all the information? They're already struggling at the moment, and this just adds yet another variant onto it.
0: Yeah, I think we don't just rely on on regulators uh, to kind of police social society, right? We we also have civil lawsuits and civil action and that sort of thing. And it'll be an interesting space. Yeah, whatever happens, there'll be yeah. a few chapters in a book about it somewhere in it, the future. It won't
3: it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Bill, thank you so much for that and some real food for thought there. And we like to end every episode of the show by asking our guests what they're excited about doing next. Now, that might be, I've got a great restaurant booked at the weekend and I can't wait, I've heard a lot about it. Or it could be something you're excited about doing in your in your day-to-day business life. So, Bill, what are you excited about doing next?
0: Well, let's say, uh, you know, one of the things in keeping with the theme around AI is uh, I'm really interested in and looking at ways in which I can use AI, actually, as a security professional. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, trying to play around with some creative ways of its application to make the life of a security leader a little bit easier. And so I'm going to be spending some time uh, diving deep into some of those technologies and really trying to, to apply them forward. That's awesome. Did you also see talking about AI security and, and
1: AI generally, I don't know whether you saw the trailer for the movie The Creator over the weekend. Did you see that? I did not. Did you see it, Rob?
3: No, uh, no, I've not seen that yet. You're going to surprise us.
1: Well, it's the new. It's the new film by the guy who made Rogue One. You know the Star Wars. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he also made a film a while back called Monsters, and and unbelievably, he happens to have be landing a film which looks like it's been in production for years. Like it's an incredibly gorgeous looking trailer. But it's about like you know, an like an AI versus man war type situation.
3: Oh, so a, a future documentary about us then? <laughs> it could be, <laughs> uh, it could be. Um, but
1: it's, uh, it just looked amazing, and I th- wait—the first, the second, like the three seconds into the trailer, I'm like, my god, the synchronicity of getting that thing out at this point, like absolutely unbelievable. You know what I mean?
3: Well, it's um, there's been it's been around for a while. You've got isaac asimov back with foundation Mm -hmm. and how they predict it and things like this but there's people have foretold technology being our downfall for a long time it's just but it's coincidence on this particular one isn't it it was absolutely amazing
1: anyway bill so thank you so much for joining us this week it's been a real pleasure to see you well thank you
2: a huge thanks to our guest this week bill thank you so much for being on the show to our sound and editing wizard ben and of course to all of our listeners we're on LinkedIn and Twitter, Dave Chapman, Rob Kernan and Xiao Zaal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week.